All right, Matthew chapter 6, verse number 9. After this manner, Jesus says, Therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to add verses 14 and 15 because they're part of the same passage, even if they're not part of the prayer. Jesus instructs from the prayer and says to his disciples, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Many of you may not know that this famous prayer, does, how many of you have this prayer memorized or at least once did before it leaked out? That's about three quarters of the room. And it's, it is the most famous prayer of Jesus. In my opinion, it's probably the most famous prayer in all of the word of God. There are some apostolic prayers that we pray and we, you know, we understand, but nobody can come close to this prayer. It is prayed by believers and unbelievers alike. It is sometimes prayed under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes it's just prayed in a, a religious way that is nothing more than reciting words. But uh, regardless of how we pray it, when Jesus gave it, it was actually instruction. Because although Matthew doesn't reveal it, Luke's gospel does. I believe it's in chapter 11. And Luke reveals that this teaching on prayer came about when one of the disciples said to Jesus, will you teach us to pray? Will you teach us to pray? And I'm impressed more than anything with the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer because we, we make prayer very complex. And granted, we have tons of things to pray about. We have more than just the Lord's Prayer from Scripture to teach us how to pray. But the, the bottom line is this. When Jesus initially taught his followers what prayer should look like, this is what he gave them. Uh, just a handful of verses. Just a handful of verses about what it looks like to pray. And the reason why that's important to me is because I'm not a prayer genius. Some of you may be prayer geniuses. I'm not. I remember when I first got saved back in 1994. It'll be 25 years to a week from this Sunday, 25 years. And I remember when I got saved, the only prayer I really had offered up to that point was, God, I've ruined my life. I'm a wreck. I don't care if you kill me or save me, but I'm done running from you. Here's my life. And through that prayer, God ushered me into eternal life because it was a prayer of surrender. But beyond that, I didn't know how to pray. And I'd go to church services, and I'd usually sit on the very back row in those early weeks and months, and some dude would get up, and he would... I remember we had one dude in particular... And he would get up to pray, and it was one of those King James prayers. It was, Thou Father in heaven, O glorious upon thy throne. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. That's how he prayed. And there were tons of these and thous. And I thought to myself, mm, if that's prayer, I guess I don't want to pray. Because it just didn't resonate with me. And then I found this little course that was put out by John Maxwell Ministries, and it was called One Hour with God. 
And I worked my, by myself through that one hour with God. So then prayer came to me about making sure I got 60 minutes of prayer in every day. And I'd pray through the verses they listed. And then they taught me how to pray in adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication. And so I had these formulas for prayer. But it still felt heavy on me. It didn't feel organic. I'm not saying God didn't use it or even honor it. It just felt a little less than relational. And eventually, I just got to the point where enough stretching was going on in my life, where my life was too big for me, it was too heavy for me, it was too intense for me, it was uh, too being transformed in a way. So prayer just started coming out of me more like cries, just crying out to God, just saying, Lord, help me, Lord, teach me, Lord, defend me, Lord, deliver me. And they were just more urgent pleas from my heart. And in, in a strong season of that, I started realizing, okay, that's where I'm meeting God. When I'm taking down all of the trellis, all of the structure, I'm taking down all the scaffolding, and I'm just being a boy in front of his father saying, I need you really badly. And in that season, that's where I learned how to pray. And so when I come across the Lord's Prayer, I, I, I'm very appreciative of the fact that it's not like 40 points to a successful prayer life. Um, that's not what we need. Let me tell you what we need. If we're going to grow in, in prayer and we're going to see results from prayer, the non-negotiable primary ingredient is hunger. We have to hunger after God because a hungry woman, a hungry man, they're going to feast on whatever they can feast on and it's that hunger that drives us. As a matter of fact, when Jesus mentions in this prayer our daily bread, he touches on a physical hunger, but he's also going to amplify this spiritual hunger. So can we walk through this together tonight? I'm just going to kind of unpack it a little bit for you. I could preach on this for five years and not tap it out and so I don't presume to offer you anything stunningly new but I do think we're going to get reacquainted with some things that the Lord is is saying we should pray into our heart our heart posture in prayer but also as we pray in this appropriate heart posture we start knowing his heart we start experiencing his heart and prayer goes from this complex religious activity that we're supposed to do and, it, and we better do and, man, we're, you know, we're trained to do. And it moves from that nonsense into a place of my father is always willing to listen and uh, I've got a lot that I want to say and if you're willing to talk, I really want to hear. And so prayer becomes a dialogue in the spirit. And so let's, let's, let's look at this. Let's just start at the beginning which I'm going to call our heavenly confidence in prayer. And I love the fact that when, when they said, please teach us how to pray, Jesus says, okay, when you pray, this is how you start. Our Father, which art in heaven. Our Father in heaven. This is where our confidence is. When Jesus began in his public ministry to refer to God as Father, it offended religious people. Um, they would come back later and say he's talking about his father we know who his father is or maybe he doesn't know who his father is so the fatherhood of Jesus was always used by his enemies to provoke him because the scandalous rumor was is that Mary got pregnant by somebody either Joseph or somebody else and so there was always this stigma on Jesus about yeah who's your daddy who's your real daddy so when Jesus started his prayer teaching he uses an Aramaic word translated into the Greek and then into the English but when Jesus 
Jesus referred to God as Father, somebody tell me the word that he used. Abba. Abba. And it was a familiar, not a reverent, not flippant, but a familiar word that children would use affectionately for their earthly father. And so Jesus says, I want your confidence when you are entering into a place or a time or a lifestyle of prayer. I want you to remember that you're not talking to a political dignitary. You're not talking to a head of state. You're not, you're not talking to the religious scorekeeper in the sky. You're not, you're not talking to some, you know, you know, disgruntled Scrooge on a cloud. You're, you're not talking to the pope, the pastor, or a priest. You're talking to the one who birthed you into his kingdom by way of the Spirit. You're talking to the one who views you as his precious child, and you're talking to one who views himself as your father. Now, the challenge in our generation, of course, is we're a fatherless generation, and even those that had dads didn't always have great dads, and so you're going to have to recognize that there's a tendency sometimes to, be, to view God the Father, the perfect Father, through the lens of fathers that have failed us on earth, and the Lord doesn't want us to do that. Jesus says, I want you to know he is your father. He is the father. He is the father of all fathers. And when Jesus set the example to his disciples and to anybody that was listening, he affectionately called Father God, the majestic, holy, eternal creator, sovereign king over the universe. He called him Abba, which in probably the best definition is my precious father. Some would even say Dada or Daddy. The reality is, is Jesus would always reverence the Father, but there was a familial relationship. And Jesus says, I want you to pray like I pray. I want you to be able to go into the presence of your God with the confidence that he's your Father. But, watch this. He said, our Father who is in heaven. So immediately you have this dual emphasis. You have the familial relationship the family relationship as father to daughter father to son but the lord does remind us that he is not a, a a father that you should casually flippantly irreverently approach now i'm, I'm going to hit this a little bit because the pendulum swung in my opinion a little too far in our generation where people are so casual with their concept of God as Father that at times it borders on irreverence. Now, I'm not, the, I'm not the fruit inspector, I'm not the scorekeeper, but I'm just saying we need to recognize that though he is near in intimacy as Father, he is still altogether other than we are. He is high, he is holy, he is glorious, when we read through our Bibles, anybody that gets into the presence of what theologians call a theophany, a visible appearance of God, they're not like, hey, what's up? That's not how they relate to the Father. They are usually on their face. You know, they, as a matter of fact, for us to even be in his presence for eternity, we're going to have to get a glorified body that can withstand the blaze of his holiness. But don't be afraid of that. Just know that's who your Abba is. And so if we can live in the confidence that he's the best father, he's the prototype of what all fathers should be, but he is altogether distinct and different, but he's gloriously good, and he's the one that pursued you. 
He's the one that chased after you. He's the one that wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. He's the one that chose you before the foundation of the world. If we can remember that's the degree of His paternal love, His fatherly love to us, that frees us up to be confident in His presence, but also recognizing that angels cry out in the throne room day and night forever and ever, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's also a holy God. And so what does that do? What's the practicality of that? Because we like to pick either or. We either like to make him so holy that his relational um, fatherhood means nothing, or we tend to be so casual because he is our papa that we forget that he is a holy God to be reverenced. And so what we're doing as a maturing group of believers is we're saying, I'm going to live in both realities. And there really isn't a human parallel for it. Um, I loved my father. I honored my father. Um, there, for, for many years when I was in my rebellion, dad and I had a terrible relationship. But as, before those years occurred, I loved my father. I would play with my father. I'd you know, we do all the things that a lot of dads and sons do. So there was intimacy, there was playfulness, there was fun. But man, I knew not to mess with dad in a way that dishonored him. And if we can learn that with our earthly fathers, how much more should we be able to reverence our heavenly father? So let's go on a little bit further. That's your confidence. I almost feel like I don't need to bypass this quite yet. This needs to be the season for some of you where the Holy Spirit gives you breakthrough in your willingness to let God be a father to you and for you to yield yourself as a child to him. It's an attack of the enemy that produces an orphan spirit that keeps us from being able to say, Abba, Father, I'm at peace in your presence. I'm not terrified. I'm not shameful. I'm not worried about all that's wrong with me as if you're going to judge me by the worst thing about me. I'm, I, I, I just know you're a father who loves me even when you can't endorse every single thing that I've done, said, or thought. I just, I'm at peace with this because your love is the predominant way that you interact with me. Your love infused with grace and mercy. And so if we can, if we can come to that place, and some of you, this needs to be your breakthrough season. I'll just venture to say this. There's some in the body of Christ that it's the only thing holding you back is that you, you got your doctrine down, you got your, your experience and your missionology, mission, uh, your, your life purpose, your mission down, um, you got your worship intact, but when you, when you picture yourself alone in a place and God's the father and you're the child, that's not your favorite place to be. You'd rather be doing something for him or in a crowd of others as you collectively worship and you can kind of be one in the crowd. But, but his whole design from the beginning was that he was making a family. And he's the father and we're the kids and he, he's, saying, he's saying to some of you, I want you to press in. I, I can't give you five steps in this sermon about how to do that, but I can say this. If, if you'll just begin asking him and saying, Lord, I, I really don't feel like I know you the way you can be known as a father. And I want to trust you as a father. And I want to know that you really feel this way about me as a child. Just start praying that because he's going to say, amen, amen. I'm going to do that. So a little pastoral counsel there. Let's go further because we're still on the first half of the first verse and I see what time it is. Here's the holy reverence of prayer. Our father who art, who, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. 
or as we King Jamesites have said it, Hallowed be thy name. It's like the South. We throw in extra syllables and words just by the way we talk in Old English is Hallowed be thy name. But what does the word mean? The word actually means separated, distinct, and set apart. And notice what Jesus is teaching. Remember, this is Jesus teaching us how to pray. So we have a confidence that we're praying to God our Father and we're accepted there, we're welcomed there, we're beloved there. And then he's saying this, he's saying, the first thing out of your mouth, not necessarily a prayer formula, but a heart position, what ought to be first and foremost in your heart is giving God the honor, giving God the glory, knowing that he is distinct and set apart and holy and gloriously good. And we actually need to have that circulating in our spirit when we approach him. And again, it's not a fear thing. It's not, look out, God's holy. It's awesome, God's holy. He's hallowed. Listen, who would want to worship a God that was just a tick above us? What kind of God would that be? That's not the, that's not the God of the Bible. He, his ways, his thoughts, his character is higher than ours, more so than the heavens are higher than the earth. And yet he stoops in grace to come to us. So yes, he's distinct and he's separate, but he's also the one who initiates the bridging of that gulf between our holiness and his holiness. And so Jesus just says, I want you to recognize that, to praise him and glorify him, and his name is always attached to his character. The way of Hebrew thinking is different than the way of most Greek thinking and post-enlightenment thinking. When the Hebrews named their children, most of the time there was a significance or a destiny even that they attached to that name and they named that child. It, it was never an afterthought or it was never what sounded good. You know, we get the what shall we name the baby book and we start saying this name with our last name. No, I don't like that. This name with our last name. And most of us, it's, it's kind of phonic. We want to know what it sounds like to see if it, it rolls well. In Hebrew thought and Hebrew culture, no, the name meant something. And so when they, the Jesus is saying, hallowed be thy name, it's not simply that the name of the Lord is distinct and different and, and to be reverenced and worshiped, it's that his character is. Now, I'm, I'm going to get a little tedious here because, again, I think the pendulum has flung, uh, swung so far in a maybe potentially unhealthy direction that we don't always stop and pause to think about what we're doing with the name of God. Um, I, you know, I don't want to give you a list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots, but the name of God is sacred to God. The name of Jesus has always been sacred to the church. Jesus is God. The other day somebody told me, well, the Bible never refers to, to, to God as male. He's male and female. And I'm thinking, um, Jesus is God and he was a guy. He was a man. So I don't want to split hairs with you, but avoid foolish controversies and silly statements like that because Jesus is called the Son of God. God is called the Father. Who called him that? Jesus. And so when we're, we're messing around with the character and the nature of God because we found some little nugget that we heard on a podcast, just stay away from that stuff and let's honor the name and the character of the Lord. And Jesus says, we need to make his name hallowed. We need to cherish it. 
That's not only in what we speak, but that's how we live in the light of his nature and his character. And so there's so many applications to that. And again, God can be worshipped and spoken of and reverenced and written about in, in countless ways. But what Jesus is teaching here is this issue of prayer. And he's saying this, your heart posture needs to remember the sacredness of the name of God and the God of that name. And it just means, oh man, I need to remember who I'm speaking with. I need to remember who I'm hearing from. Again, don't be afraid. Just be intentional. Think about what we're doing. Are there times where we can exhale and just be raw and open with the God of the universe? Absolutely, there should be times like that. But that's different from being flippant and casual and treating God like the latest cool guy that is a guru. Are y'all following me on this, or is this offending you? Because if you're offended, you can apologize to me later, and I'll, I'll accept it, all right? That was a joke. Come on. Oh, man, I'm feeling it tonight. Y'all have to unclench, okay? Just chill a little bit. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and him teaching our heart posture when we do that thing that's supposed to be natural to our soul, which is pray. So that holy reverence and the, and the, the um, heavenly confidence, and then verse 10. The humble deference. What does it mean? What does the word deference mean? It means a deferring to another, a laying down of maybe our plan, our agenda, our will, and saying yes to another's. And so Jesus teaches that in our prayer life, we should have a humble deference to the Lord. What does he say? He says when we're praying, pray this, Father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth just like your will is done in heaven. Now, this is important. This, for me, is one of those explosive moments in the Lord's Prayer because this moves into uh, a stage of, of clear surrender. When we are praying, let your will be done. First of all, he's praying, let your kingdom come. Just quick word, because the whole Sermon on the Mount series is about the kingdom of God. It's about the king of that kingdom. And I, I don't have time to unpack the dynamics of the entire kingdom of God here. But I want you to remember a couple of things. One, there are kingdoms, little k, of this world right now. You've got, you've got republics, you've got confederations, you've got nations, you've got all sorts of kingdoms. Then you have systems like... Uh, the Western civilization might be considered a kingdom, which would involve many nations. You've got systems of belief, systems of thoughts, and kingdoms, little k kingdoms, everywhere. And that has been in the history of mankind. You've got empires, and you, you know all of that. Um, ultimately, uh, the book of Revelation, why am I not remembering? Maybe it's Revelation 11. Um, ultimately, it tells us that the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? In the end of the story, all of the kingdoms bow to the kingdom and all of the kings bow to the king. So in the end of the story, there's only one kingdom that endures forever. And so by way of practical application, that should be the kingdom we're living for now. And so there's a ton of little rabbit trails I can go off on right now, but let me just make an application because we're approaching an election year. 
Don't sacrifice the big K kingdom principles that we're called to be in allegiance to for the little K kingdoms called Republicans and Democrats and this and that. Don't sacrifice your big K allegiance to your puny little K uh, tilt one way or another. Uh, if you've got problems with that, email Dustin and he'll be happy to answer you on that. My point being is this, God, we want your kingdom to come. Your kingdom is based on righteousness and justice. That's where his throne is established. We want Jesus to get the glory. We want everything about our lives when decision time comes. We want to answer what does this decision look like in the big K kingdom of God Almighty because we're praying we want your kingdom to come. And when his kingdom comes into your life, guess what goes? Your kingdom. Your little kingdom actually gets evicted when his kingdom comes. So Jeff, can't we have both? No, you can't. You actually cannot because those kingdoms will inevitably compete with each other. And so it is a master's uh, metaphor there. It is, he's the king and he's a better king than I am. So if I'm determined I want to run the kingdom of my life on like, for like two days, I might be cruising. I might be saying, this is awesome, man. I am killing it as the king of my own little kingdom. And then day three comes and the whole thing falls apart and I realize I am a really poor ruler of my own life. I need Jesus front and center seated upon the throne of my heart ruling and reigning as the sovereign Lord of Jeff Lyle's life and I'll just risk it and say that's what you need too. Lord, let your kingdom come. It's not that his kingdom is not present. Jesus mentioned several times about the imminence of the kingdom that is here with us now. But what Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray is keep pressing into the kingdom until it is uncontested and established on planet earth. So what does that mean? It means the king is coming back to planet earth one day. No, bodily, visibly descending from heaven in the skies. The Bible says that every eye will at some point in the future behold him. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue, I get excited thinking about this. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of the Father. And nobody's going to be wondering who the king of the world is. Nobody, he, he, you know, we, we're not going to have to wait on Time Magazine's man of the year. It's just going to, be, it's going to be uncontested because the Son of God is going to come back and He's going to put down every rival kingdom. And Jesus actually told us, the church, pray for that day. Pray for that day to come. That's right, Maranatha. Even so, Lord Jesus, come soon, come quickly. But please know this. It, it, it's going to come to your life. I mean, listen, the kingdom comes into our lives and then is poured out through our lives. And so when the flesh lusts against the spirit, as Paul taught us, and there's a war being waged there, it can be placed in another way. Your little K kingdom doesn't want to submit to his big K kingdom. And somewhere you have the ability to decide which kingdom is going to manifest through your life. And so it's just yet another reason why Jesus said, yeah, when you follow me, bring a cross with you and die daily. Um. He does say this, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Raise your hand if you've ever struggled with the will of God for your life. Y'all are weak, come on. Are, are you tired? Come on. We, we've struggled with God's will at some point. Some of you just got saved five minutes ago, and so you haven't had a chance to struggle yet. But man, I'm telling you, you walk with Jesus by faith, there's going to be moments where you're like, uh, are you sure, Lord? I mean, is this really what's happening? Jesus said... I want you to learn something and I want you to pray it. 
Father, we want your will to be done. We want it to be done right here on earth. And because, obviously, we're earthlings, that means, Lord, we want your will to be done in our lives. And um, Jesus didn't just say for us to amen that as a concept. He said, I want you to go after that. I want you to pray to the Father that his will would be done on planet earth the way that it's done in heaven. And again, the, the climax of that reality only happens when Jesus returns to the earth and God's will is enforced and established before the eternal uh, state is, is, is established. So in other words, at the end, when Jesus is on earth, there's going to be war against him, war in Jerusalem. I don't want to get eschatologically distracted here, but there, the Satan's going to give one final futile attempt to destroy the Son of God, and he's going to garner some of the nations to come up against Jesus on his throne in Jerusalem. And the Bible says a sword's going to come out of Jesus' mouth and everybody's dead. Say, like, Jeff, that's not nice. I'm sorry, it's true. He's going to destroy the enemies, who the, the heathen that have raged against them, and he's going to destroy them. And that's when the will of God will be uncontested on planet Earth. Can, can you go there with me for a minute? I probably am not going to get done with this tonight, but can you picture... A reality where the righteousness and the justice and the love of God is the atmosphere of planet Earth and you're breathing it and so is everybody else. I mean, I don't know everything that's going, what life's going to be like at that time. You know, I mean, I know we're not going to be on, on a cloud playing harps or trumpets or, or MP3 players. It's not going to be like that. We're going to be on a renewed, restored planet Earth where Jesus Christ is ruling. We're ruling and reigning with him. And everybody, all of the redeemed, we're going to be absolutely holy. You will not argue with anybody anymore. You'll never get in your flesh again. You'll never sin. Nobody will ever mistreat you. You'll, you'll never be wearied in your spirit again. I mean, the list can go on and on, but the main thing is that we're actually going to be with Jesus. We're actually going to see him, that literally the, 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 the God-man is going to return back to planet Earth and everybody's going to throw away their pictures of Jesus that they got hanging on the wall because it looks nothing like him. And, and we're, going, we're going to literally say, oh, we don't need the Constantine look-alike. We'll throw that away. We, we, here he is. That's coming, man. It has nothing to do with my message, but I'm excited about it. So he's saying, pray into that. Maybe it does have something to do with the message. He's saying, pray into that. Pray for the will of the Father to be the reality of planet Earth. Pray that over your family. Pray that over you. Man, just start, walk into work this week. I wouldn't recommend, you know, doing it with a megaphone, but just walk, walk the cubicle, the office, the 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 atrium wherever you work the you know, if you're working outside walk the place outside and just say lord i declare that this is a great place for your will to be accomplished let your will and lord i'm available if you want to pour your will through me then i'm available and just watch what the father does with a heart posture like that verse 11 the honest dependence of prayer jesus says pray this give us this day our daily bread this will go completely over our American Western civilization heads. Most of us in the room, I would venture to say 99, if not 100% of us in the room, 
are not living in a paradigm where we have no idea what we're going to eat most days. Most of us, when Jesus is saying this to them, he's not writing a Hallmark card that, you know, this is, give us this day our daily bread and, or put it in it to song. He's teaching people, hey, there's no QT, there's no Kroger, there's no microwave, there's no Seasons 51 or whatever that new restaurant is that I'm dying to go eat at. There's none of that. And so when they woke up, they said, we need food today. And it was an agrarian society, and so they, their harvest was the primary place for their food. Their livestock depended on a good harvest. So literally, in order to be able to survive, they needed God to provide the rain, God to provide the sun, God to provide the grain in order that the livestock might be fed and they could all eat. And they weren't made of different stuff than us, and so the propensity for them was to potentially worry over the future. Maybe it was a light harvest. How are we going to make it until the next harvest? Uh, what are we going to do? Maybe some of the livestock died and there was no milk or there were no eggs or there was, there was no meat. And, and they, they were like us. They worried about tomorrow. And Jesus just comes in and they're saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus hits them with this. Pray prayers that confess your daily dependence on God's sufficiency. Guys, I, I, I feel like I have to confess before I preach this. I don't live that way. I, I'm telling you, I don't live in, an, in a context where my daily awareness is I have to have God's hand on everything or I perish. And I don't live in a paradigm where I'm not really thinking about my future. And it's not that the scriptures teach us to never think about tomorrow. There's a lot of Proverbs that teach about the wisdom of preparation, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying some seasons you may only have enough for that day. Ask God to ensure that it comes to you, and the application is, and then be ridiculously grateful that he's provided for that day. Anybody challenged by that? I'm challenged by that. You know what our culture says? Lord, give us this decade everything we need today. That's what we do. It's a whole American investment and economical system is that we're, we are more inclined to root ourselves in the American paradigm of what it means to live and live abundantly than we are the kingdom paradigm. Now, I'm not a hater. If you're blessed and you got money, God bless you. He gave it to you so you can do kingdom stuff with it. So go after it. And I pray he just keeps pouring, pouring it on you. But I've noticed a propensity in both the poor and the rich that whatever they have, they fear it's not enough. So Jesus just says, I want you to rest in the sufficiency that all of your needs are met today. All of your needs are met today. Before we get done with chapter number six, he's going to go hard after this issue of anxiety in our heart about material resources. And he, he just keeps drawing us back to seeking the kingdom first. And Jesus, he just doesn't honor our protests. I mean, and our, our you know, we, we, we give him the, yeah, but... You know, the Lord says, pray that you'll have daily sufficiency and be grateful when that comes. And then don't worry about the things of tomorrow because tomorrow will have its own worries. So just seek the kingdom first and everything you need will be added to you. And we're like, yeah, but... And if Jesus had a dialogue with us, he'd just look at us and he'd smile and he'd be like, no, I'm, I'm actually serious. 
your father's really good and he's going to give you what you need and listen we have to wean ourselves off of the presumption that we're supposed to always be entitled to an abundance to where we don't have to actually trust God yeah this is getting deep because you know you know what a lot of people do we want abundance not simply to enjoy life which I want to enjoy life but we we want abundance because quite honestly the more stuff we have the less faith we need right <laughs> thank you Naomi I am I am soaking up the encouragement sister because it feels like thin ice but listen I'm the the sermon on the mounts not for for the weak of heart Jesus is not trying to make us feel great with this awesome sermon he's saying hey the kingdom's really different than the earthly paradigm and since you're kingdom citizens I want you to know what I like and I want you to know what I am like and that's what he's teaching here and he's like just trust the father um, what did Jesus own when he was on earth? Materially. He owned his clothes. He didn't have a house. Um, he lived apparently under his mother's roof. And then when he left to do his three and a half year mission of advancing and proclaiming the kingdom, he, he never had a house. Um, and he obviously was very content with the father. How many times did he say to the Father, uh, I've come to do your will, let your will be done, not my will but yours. And yet Jesus was entitled to every material thing in the universe, but he said, no, I'm, I'm really, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He said, I'm going to feast on doing the will of the Father. So we get down into verse number 12. I don't know if we're going to get done, but I'll try to touch on these. Uh, there also needs to be a heartfelt repentance of prayer. Um, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We associate the word debt with money. That's not what he's talking about, as will be made clear in verses 14 and 15. Uh, the other gospel writers talk about our transgressions being forgiven. And so when Jesus is speaking of our debts here, he's saying, Father, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This is, um, this is tough. And I'm, going, I'm, I'm not going to like yell it or anything because I don't have to. It's, it's just tough. Because in verses 14 and 15, after he finishes the, the, Lord, the prayer that he gives to the disciples, he actually takes one part of the entire prayer and he amplifies it. And what is it? It's this issue of forgiving others. So he's saying, Father, forgive us our debts as we forget our debt, or if we forgive our debtors. Forgive our sins against you as we're forgiving those that have sinned against us. First of all, Jesus tells you to confess your sins. Again, a pendulum swing. Oh, well, the blood of Jesus covers it all. I don't even have to verbalize what I've done. God knows my sins, and it's all covered by the blood, and it's forgiven, and so I'm justified. No, 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 that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, when you're praying, ask the Father to forgive your sins. Why would he do that? Because when we're, when we're asking for forgiveness of a sin, we're not telling God something he doesn't know. We're not saying, Lord, I did this thing. I know you don't know about it, but I want to confess it to you, and I need your forgiveness. God already knows, and so what are we doing? We're humbling ourselves, and we're honoring his holiness and his Father's heart. We're saying we honor you enough to verbalize in humility and contrition that we have done something that is in opposition to your nature 
It's good for us to humble our souls and acknowledge that we've done something wrong. Why? Because you have a relationship with him. What kind of family would there be if people were constantly wronging each other and they would just say, oh, it's my wife. She's got to forgive me. I don't have to apologize. That's my husband. I don't have to say anything about that. We made vows to each other. He'll be there tomorrow. I don't have to apologize. Parents to kids, kids to parents. No, because we value relationships. When we've done something wrong, we admit it. We confess it. We ask for forgiveness for our, for in our human relationships. How much more when we've done something to offend God? And so Jesus is the one that taught us to confess it. Beware of any movement that so broadly paints the forgiveness of God that it, it results in us not even having to confess our sins anymore. And by the way, that has been a movement in the modern era. Just, ah, the blood covers it, no need to mention it because God doesn't see our sins. I'm going to tell you, if you want to have intimacy with the Lord, intimacy is not independent of honoring the Lord. And the root word of the word honor is honest. And we have to be honest with him. But he says this, Lord, we crave your forgiveness. We know we need your forgiveness. Forgive our debts just like we forgive our debtors. So they're going to throw verses 14 and 15 up on the screen. Look at this. Now, this is Jesus talking. Just let your Bible mean what it means. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I've heard this preached so many different ways, and the ultimate way that it's preached is almost never the way Jesus preached it. Notice what Jesus didn't do. Jesus did not say, now I know that's controversial, it might scare you, let me explain what I mean. He, he just said it and let it hang there. No explanation. In the, in the infinite heart of the Son of God, this kingdom reality was so plain and so anchored in the nature of God that Jesus just stated it as fact. So immediately, when I hear that, I'm like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean if I won't forgive somebody, I can't go to heaven? Well, let me tell you what it means. Jesus didn't unpack it, but I'm going to, and I'm going to do it based on other scripture, and I'm just going to teach you for a couple of minutes here on this. The forgiver lives inside of every redeemed person. So God lives inside the child of God. The saved person who is trusted in Jesus Christ is inhabited more precisely by God the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in you. God, the Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, is a holy and forgiving God. So you have the forgiver ruling your life. That's what it means to be saved. It doesn't mean that we don't fail, stumble, and sin. I'm not preaching sinless perfection. But what I am preaching is humble submission. Because Lord is more than a word. It's a position that he holds. And so when the Lord is ruling our lives as Lord and Savior, the process by which he moves through us involves at times forgiving those that wrong us. Why? Because he forgave us when we wronged him. And when we come into that place of awareness of how much we have been forgiven, it quickens something in our human spirit to where the forgiver is released in us and releases forgiveness through us. You say, well, Jeff, you just dodged the question. I'm asking you, do I go to heaven if I refuse to forgive so-and-so? And I would say, oh, no, you don't miss heaven because you refuse to forgive somebody. You missed heaven because you're not born again. You say, well, what are you saying? I'm saying the person who refuses to forgive is not born again. Now, I didn't say you won't struggle to forgive. 
that it won't be hard to be vulnerable to forgive, that it won't cause you a dying to self on a layer that maybe you just don't have the faculty for, the resources for in your humanness. I'm not saying it won't be hard, but I'm saying this, and this is what Jesus is saying. If you refuse to forgive, you cannot access forgiveness. What does that mean? It means it doesn't matter how many times you said Jesus come into my heart and got dunked in the water or sprinkled or confirmed. It doesn't matter how many sermons you preached or songs that you sung or gospel pamphlets that you handed out. If the root of your heart is found to be in the bond of bitterness and a refusal to forgive, listen, this is hard. It's a hard saying. Forgive everybody for everything. If you refuse to, it is because he does not live within you. I know it's hard, but it's not originating with me. And Jesus needs to be taken at face value. So if in my heart, and listen, when I read, I read these verses today. I've preached these, I've read these. I read them today, and I literally just stopped and said, is there anybody today, Lord, that I need to forgive? And I'm going I'm to be totally honest with you. I ate lunch with a good friend today I hadn't seen in a couple years. He was a part of our church and missionary to Scotland. His name's Nathan Young. And we reconnected today, and we were going over some war stories. And he knew some of the stuff that I went through as a pastor. And he's like, how, how are those relationships? I said, a lot of those people left. And Nathan, it took me a minute. But I can tell you, I sit here today, and there's not a single one of them that I can't love and haven't forgiven. But here's the deal. That wasn't true on day one. When the wounds are fresh, I could not have been able to say, I have forgiven everybody. What I would have had to have said that time is, I'm pressing into the Lord because I must forgive them and I want to, but I don't know how. That's different from saying, I will not forgive them. Because the spirit that says, I will not forgive them, says to God, all that you've forgiven me doesn't mean much. And therefore, what we find out is this, maybe we haven't actually experienced his forgiveness because we don't have his spirit inside. So it can be a warning, but it can also be seen in a, in a, in a great way. That though, By the way, Jesus isn't the only one that taught this. James said, the one who judges without mercy will receive no mercy. Remember that? And so it's, it's all throughout Scripture. Proverbs, some of the Psalms, you're going to find it in New Testament doctrine. The apostles referenced it. And so the ultimate reality is forgiven people are forgiving people. And if we're not forgiving people, we're not forgiven people. And so, friends, it can be so pedantic that you might have to go home tonight, take that picture off your dartboard that has a thousand little pricks in it because you've been throwing your dart at it forever, and you take that picture and you get on your face before God and you say, God, how can I receive your forgiveness so lavishly and refuse to forgive this person? Help me, Jesus. I want to honor you as one who's been forgiven and I want to be forgiving. Our crimes against God, our sins against God are far more treasonous than anybody's sins against us or our sins against them. And so if we have received from the high holy one in whom there is no sin, if we have received lavish forgiveness, then we will become forgivers. And so that's our repentance. Lord, forgive us as we've forgiven others. Last verse. Here's the honorable conscience of prayer. What does that mean? 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Literally in the Greek, the evil one. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus wanted us to pray in a way that secured us from defilement, temptation, sin, and, and fallenness. He wants us to enlist the aid of God Almighty, our Father, and for us to vocalize, Lord, don't lead us into temptation. Now recognize this. The Bible is very clear that God has never, ever solicited anybody to do evil. The Lord tempts nobody with evil. So Jesus is not being uh, erroneous here, obviously, nor are the other writers that say God doesn't tempt us to sin. What, this is what he's saying, and you can kind of find this unpacked through a lot of different scriptures, but the, 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 uh, the heartbeat of this part of the prayer seems to be, Lord, you know the places that we will fall. You know the holes that we step in, the traps that we seem drawn to. You know us at our weakest place where our flesh and the world and the devil exploits us. Lord, don't allow us to step into those places where we know we will fall. It is in essence a prayer of humility saying, I know I have the potential to implode. I know there are places that may never tempt somebody else, but it provokes a weakness in me. Lord, never let me enter into those places. Deliver me from the evil one. That's a pretty interesting part of a prayer that Jesus, who knew no sin, is offering to us. Jesus never had to pray to the Father, don't let me sin. It was never going to happen. He's holy God in essence. But Jesus knew what it was like to be tested because he began his ministry with a 40-day testing in the, in the wilderness where the devil tempted him every single day. And Jesus fought back and won with the word of God and the spirit of God. You and I are not Jesus. We have the propensity to fall and fail and sin, and I just want to, let's get honest, we all have weak places. I, it doesn't matter what your weak place is, it can be completely different, but we all have weak places, and what Jesus is saying is know your weak places and enlist the aid of the Father to never allow anything to lead you to that place. And in his sovereignty, he can control circumstances. So in essence, we're appealing to the sovereignty of God that circumstances would never lead us into a place where we would be tempted and fall. Um, that requires a fair amount of knowing yourself. And when you are able to live a life that doesn't give in to those kind of temptations and places, you can come into the presence of the Father with an honored conscience. You can go in, and there's no ammunition for the enemy to accuse you. The, one of the main reasons why the Lord Jesus doesn't want us to live lives that welcome sin is not because, you know, it, it lowers our score in heaven. You know what my score is in heaven, by the way? Do you know what it is? It's 100. My score is 100. You know why? Because my actual score, the one I earned, got nailed to a cross that Jesus was on, and his score got put on my account. Y'all don't believe that? My score is 100. So I'm not trying to up my score, and I'm not worried about lowering my standing. This is why I don't want to sin. 
because it breaks my fellowship with the one I love the most. I don't want to enter into temptation not because I feel like, you know, my A, my a is going to drop down to a B minus if I do something nasty, but because anything that, that enters in that is counterfeit to the heart of God is sin and that on some level busts up my fellowship with him. So, Father, protect me from my propensity to break fellowship with you and let me walk in holiness and deliver me from the evil one who his only desire is to ruin my fellowship with you. That's what the enemy wants to do. Last part, the hunger for excellence in prayer. And so we'll end on a high note because I know I've depressed some of you tonight, but (laughs) listen, I mean, the word of God is, you know, how, how do we grow if we're not stretched? I mean, how, how do we grow? How do, how do we... Some of you um, are gym rats, and y'all love working out, and uh, I've just started getting back to working out, and I'm already hating it, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> I am. I'm, I got tired of being fat, and so I'm starting to work on this thing. And um, your strength is built by a process which includes the tearing and breaking down of your muscles. Heavier weights, when they're listed under the skin, actually tear your muscles. And when they're built back up, they're made harder and they're made stronger. And the strength actually comes as a result of the tearing down and the breaking up. That's what we're doing here. We're tearing down our spiritual flab. We're, we're breaking down muscles that have that have have. have just kind of stagnated and and God's building them back up so there's a little pain with the process but if we'll respond to it and keep staying engaged in these spiritual workouts we come out stronger and so Jesus ends with this high note tells us to hunger for excellence in prayer he says here's the end of the prayer remind yourself in God's presence by telling him yours is the kingdom Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. And that's the way it's going to be forever. Amen. That's what he's saying. Jesus brings us back to the anchoring point of what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is the expression of a relationship with a forgiven sinner, between a forgiven sinner and the God of eternal glory, that you get to partake of his glory forever and ever, that you get to spend a redeemed eternity in the blaze of his immeasurable power forever and ever, that you get to move in and out of an everlasting kingdom as one of the eternal citizens of that kingdom forever and ever. It is your destiny which is rooted in his glory. And the reason why that's so important is because everything in this world tells you, build your own kingdom, exert your own power, live for your own glory. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't do any of that. But when you pray, just pray knowing his is the kingdom, his is the power, his is the glory forever and ever. You're free to live for that. You don't have to waste your life living for your temporary kingdom, your temporary power, and your paltry glory. Find your purpose in him. Find your purpose in his kingdom. Let's stand together.
You are glorious, Lord. Your name is hallowed, Father. We want your kingdom to come in our lives. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us, God, where we have failed. And Lord, be relentless to perfect us to a place where we can forgive those who have sinned against us. Give us, Lord, the willingness to pursue forgiveness. Give us our daily bread. I thank you today. I have everything I needed for today. I thank you tomorrow it'll be the same. Next month, Lord, you've got that on your calendar. Thank you for telling me I don't have to worry about it. Thank you for daily bread. Thank you, Lord, that in the end, at the back of the book, the end of the age, when time is no more, the anthem of eternity is yours, is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.